You're listening to episode 78 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Last week, we released part one of our interview with Nicholas Schreck, where we delved into his formative years, his passion for silent cinema, his band Radio Werewolf, getting caught up in the satanic panic, and above all, the ins and outs of his documentary Charles Manson's Superstar, as well as his decades-long friendship with Manson himself. This week, we're covering a host of other subjects, such as his acting work in the films Mortuary Academy and Blade Runner, working with Christopher Lee on his debut album, his connection to the filmmakers Curtis Harrington and Kenneth Anger, his book, The Satanic Screen, an illustrated guide to the devil in cinema, and his upcoming documentaries. So join us now as we conclude what has been a fascinating insight into the world of esotericism and cap off an interview that we hope has given you plenty to talk about. Thank you for joining us for part two of our discussion with Nicholas Schreck. If you have not listened to part one, do so now. If you have, let us rewind to the last moments of part one to segue into part two. Because something I'm infinitely fascinated in is your former wife, Zena Schrecks. Do you still call it a godfather when it's from the Church of Satan? That was what they called him, yes. Your wife at the time's godfather was Kenneth Anger. Now, he is the esteemed short filmmaker of the 1950s and 60s. His career spanned many decades, but I, I suppose his influence was more greatly felt in this 1960s, that zeitgeist of, you know, the new age, the kind of new ideas. And he captured, you know, the imaginations of, you know, your Mick Jagger, your Donald Camel, our Scottish filmmaker Donald Camel, who right. would be in Lucifer Rising. Now, what was your relationship with him? Now, Kenneth Anger has held esteem from filmmakers such as Martin Scorsese. And I would, I, I would actually say that Kenneth Anger is kind of a precursor, not to, you know, devalue his work, but he's almost a precursor to the work that would come on MTV, you know, you, the, the blending of pop music and montage. He was very aware of that. He, he would complain that MTV music videos had kind of ripped off his okay. style, which is certainly true. Um, I first saw Kenneth Anger when I was a teenager at Gilbert's Bookstore, which was the best occult bookstore in Los Angeles. I went in there and I and I went there to buy rare and look for occult books at that time. It was one of the few places okay. you could get that. It had been around since the 1920s. Like Errol Flynn had apparently gone in there to buy Aleister Crowley books when they were new. <laughs> um, or David Bowie during his cocaine occult period in Los Angeles yep. once went in there and bought a- The Thin White Duke thousands of um of dollars of of occult books there and one day i saw from behind the lucifer jacket that he had he was wearing it and i and i heard him he was trying to sell something and he was like bitchily whinily complaining to the manager of the store that's the first time i encountered him then at Forrest J. Ackerman's 70th birthday party. So who, who's Forrest J. Forrest Ackerman? Forrest J. Ackerman then? was, if people in Britain may not know him, he was the editor of a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. Okay, right. Which sort of created the monster mania or marketed the monster mania okay. of the 60s. Was it almost like a precursor to Fangori or something? Yeah, like it, it, it was okay. a very influential thing on the so-called monster generation of, okay. of kids of the 60s. And he had this gala birthday party on his 70th birthday. And Kenneth was there and he came up to me and the drummer of Radio Werewolf. And he was he said, do you know where Neil Jordan is, the the director of Company of Wolves, I'm looking for him. And that is the first words that Kenneth Anger ever said. And, the, and then he knew what Radio Werewolf was, actually. And it was Kenneth okay. who sent uh, some clippings of Radio Werewolf to Anton LaVey in San Francisco, even before I met him, or he had even met Zena. 
So for our audience who may not be too familiar with Kenneth Anger, he directed such esteemed short works as Fireworks, Puce Moment, Rabbit's Moon, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, Scorpio Rising, Invocation of My Demon Brother, Lucifer's Rising. What was your opinion of those types of films? Because they're very, very, as you said, you're very interested in the silent film world. And he's, I think he pretty much directed all these films on his old 16 millimeter camera, if I'm correct. Right. Except for Lucifer Rising, which he got some, a little bit more major financing for. As a you know, a teenager, it was very difficult to see his films again. If you wanted to see them, you had to go to revival theaters where they would be showing maybe once that year. And so it was a big deal to go see a Kenneth Anger film. They were not commonly known. They didn't play very often. And I, and I saw them. I don't, I don't think he's a great filmmaker, frankly. I don't think he's... Oh, in, ooh, okay, why? Wow. I, I, don't, I don't think he's... I think... And I write about this in the Satanic Screen. Yeah. I don't think... I think he happened to be at the right time and the right place to capture... The zeitgeist. Yeah, he captured the zeitgeist. But, you know, after 1980, and already that the Lucifer Rising really was from the 70s, he never really made an important film again, or even a good film. I think, I think he he was, he happened to be the camera that was there when interesting things were happening. Inauguration of the okay. Pleasure Dome had a big influence on me because of its esoteric and occult themes. Curtis Harrington, who became a very close friend of mine, he plays Chesare the Somnambulist in that film. Yeah. But Kenneth Ang- well, Kenneth Anger's films influenced me in the sense that they were attempting to use artistic productions for magical means. That is what influenced yep. me. Sort of like William Burroughs used writing yep. for magic, Kenneth Anger used film for magic. And and you were kind of do- trying to do with Radio Werewolf. Exactly. Well, so that's the influence. And, and I spoke to Kenneth about that, and he knew that. So he made Anton LaVey aware of Radio Werewolf. And when I met Anton in San Francisco, he knew about it because of Kenneth. Um, I met Kenneth many times, you know, and the last time I saw him was in 1999 before I left Los Angeles. And this kind of sums him up. He was talk. He was saying. He's saying. You know, I've never put a curse on anybody. People think I'm so mean spirited. I've never put a curse on anyone. Okay. And then in the next sentence, he proceeded to talk about how he put a curse on somebody who crossed him about some issue, and that he that the person died in a fiery car crash. So within the same paragraph, he said, "I never put a curse on anyone," and then was bragging about the fatal curse he put on someone what was his day-to-day personality like now we build through pop culture you know he's almost like this curmudgeon character this almost borderline sinister character what was he like just to navigate a conversation with in his day-to-day he could be very pleasant and in a good when he was in a good mood he was pleasant and and cheerful and humorous when he was in a bad mood he could be bitchy venomous mean-spirited Okay. Uh, he seemed manic depressive to me. I think bipolar. Okay. He, he, he was very moody. He could be very argumentative. He very often took offense to things. He was quick to feel insulted. Mick Jagger would score his film invocation of my demon brother this really primitive early electronic score he Mick Jagger would produce for that film and also in Lucifer Rising. The score was done by Bob, Bobby Boussoulet, and Bobby Boussoulet would obviously have connections with the Charles Manson case. So The question is, would the Charles uh-huh. Manson thing have ever happened if not for Bobby Boussoulet knowing Kenneth Anger? Wow. Bobby Boussoulet oh. was a musician in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury in 67, yeah. and Kenneth Anger was making what was then called Lucifer Rising, but it, it turned yeah. into the film uh, in our Invocation of My Demon Brother. And he had cast this child as Lucifer, but the child died in an accident. A kid named Godot, who was the son of a famous counterculture figure. And then Bobby Beausoleil, he met him at a church performance, a musical performance. And Kenneth said, you are my Lucifer. And (laughs) Bobby Beausoleil moved in with Kenneth at the Russian embassy in San Francisco and made this, and he was involved in the making of Lucifer Rising, which 
the first version was released as in Invocation of My Demon Brother, and he met Anton LaVey on the set of it. Beausoleil and LaVey didn't get along. This was before oh, okay. Manson even met Beausoleil. Okay. Any reason or? Well, what happened was they got into essentially a lover spat, and okay. Bobby Beausoleil left San Francisco in a huff, left and went to Los Angeles and ended up living with Gary Hinman, who he killed two years later. Yeah. But would that have ever happened if Kenneth Anger hadn't met Bobby Beausoleil? So Kenneth Anger has more of a connection to the crimes and the, and the background of why they happened than you would think. Well, Bobby Beausoleil wasn't was he was kind of a two-bit actor of himself. Was he not in like a softcore pornography called Ramrod or something? Well, pornography is a big part of the whole Manson thing, and there was a lot okay. of serious, real, hardcore pornography made. But okay. yeah, he he wasn't really an actor. He happened to be in Ramrodder, which is the this sort yeah. of softcore porn thing that was made in '67 that also has Gypsy Share. Uh, you know, Catherine Share okay. is in that, which a member of the Manson commune. Uh, he was mostly a, he was a fairly good musician and he had good connections to the music world. He was also in the film Mondo Hollywood, which is interesting because right. Jay Sebring is also in that film. And that is a film filled with synchronicities and weirdness. Yeah. And that ties into a lot of our listeners' favorite filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson, which Mondo Hollywood is one of Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite films of all time. Right. Mondo Hollywood is a very interesting film in the connections that it has that and actually, the director of the film, Robert Cohen, told me several years ago, this is interesting, that he found Bobby Beausoleil through a mutual girlfriend of Jay Sebring. That means that a girl okay. was in 67 was dating Jay Sebring and Bobby Beausoleil, and she okay. introduced... So that shows you what a small world this was, actually. But, yeah, that, as far as Kenneth Anger, his influence on me remains that he tried to use art in a magical way. And another name you mentioned just moments ago was Curtis Harrington. Now, Cur Curtis Harrington was the DP on Kenneth Anger's 1949 short film, Puce Moment. And I know in a nice, as you a word you mentioned not too long ago, synchronicity, Curtis Harton's first film was The Fall of the House of Usher, and his last film was Usher, which was based on The Fall of the House of Usher, and his last film starred you, you and your then-wife, Zena Shrek. Correct. How did that come about? Uh, well, we befriended Curtis in the 90s when we moved back to Los Angeles. We had always been an admirer of his films, particularly Night Tide with Dennis Hopper. We became very close friends with his and, and went to his... Okay. He had these very old-fashioned salons at his house at which we met people like Barbara Steele. She was in a David Cronenberg film in the 1970s. She was mostly an Italian horror film, but the films of Mario Bava and Black Sunday and that kind of thing. Yep. So we met a lot of aging horror icons through Curtis at these salons, something that could only happen in Hollywood. It's a lost... Thing that doesn't even <laughs> exist anymore and curtis was kind of a mentor to us and and uh you okay. know a very close friend the first film he ever made when he was 13 was um, uh the house of usher and yeah and he played madeline usher and roderick usher and so yeah. he knew when he was making usher that he put that he cast xena and i in that he pretty much was sure it was going to be his last film. So it was a deliberate, a deliberate full circle in his career. But we, we, and actually we helped finance the film. Jane Wolfe, who was a follower of Aleister Crowley, knew Kenneth and had given him a very rare autographed copy of one of Crowley's magical books. And we helped broker the sale of this book and that helped finance the film. Also, Roger Corman, who, who directed the original Fall of the House of Usher with Vincent Price, helped Curtis to make that film. So what exactly was your original role in the film, Usher? Because I've looked it up. You play a character, I believe you're billed as priest in the film. I play, a, I play the Catholic priest, the, the cleric of the Usher family. And, and his name was actually Father Hubbard. He had the character had a name because Curtis and I were very fascinated with the whole Scientology L. Ron Hubbard mythos. 
Was it also an interest in like the works of Edgar Allan Poe as well? Was that something that interested you about your involvement in the we film? We both loved Edgar Allan Poe. We we had a deep fascination and rapport with all the works of Poe and discussed it many times. So yeah, it was it was an honor to work with Curtis on his last film because he has had more than Kenneth, I think I think he was the better filmmaker, actually. Yeah, he had a big influence on my life and getting to know him, he was very much a mentor in terms of filmmaking. Well, both of those filmmakers you mentioned, Curtis Hart and Kenneth Anger, you could almost class them as godfathers of the new queer cinema movement of the 1990s, what would you know include Gus Van Sant, Todd Haynes or anything. Was there any respect? I know his final film in 2000, which starred you in Xena, was there respect for Curtis Harrington at that moment? Was he seen as the grandfather of this kind of new queer cinema movement? He was openly homosexual, but like a lot of older people from that generation, he didn't really embrace the whole queer identity. Okay. He didn't politicize it. He didn't make a big deal about it. To him, uh, like actually his mentor was James Whale, the director of Frankenstein and the okay. Old Dark yeah. House and The Bride of Frankenstein. And and James Whale was openly gay too, but didn't make a big deal of it. So Curtis was from the generation that really didn't politicize his so-called queerness. So he was aware of it, and of course he was he welcomed any recognition and praise for his films, but he didn't particularly advocate that whole he didn't have a political point of view at all. What about Kenneth Anger? Because if you see Kenneth Anger's aesthetic in some of especially some of his earlier films you can see the thread that kind of draws it to william friedkin's film cruise and star oh yeah no in many ways um uh scorpio rising creates a lot of the leather boy gay aesthetic yeah yeah, absolutely no he he too though had an ambiguous feeling about he didn't really want kenneth not really want to be a part of a collective movement i would say neither curtis nor him were particularly that may disappoint more politically correct people (laughs) but they they didn't they didn't want to define themselves by their sexuality now something i didn't know about curtis harrant and and, well of course you will but i didn't know he had a cameo in orson welles is the other side of the wind yeah gary graver what had 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 he was involved with all kinds of horror films porno films he filmed usher he was the director of photography of Usher, okay. and Gary Graver knew was a very good friend of Orson Welles. So Curtis knew Orson Welles, and he appears in that film. But Nicholas, you have made your trip around pop culture somehow, because intrinsic to us over here in the United Kingdom in 1998. Now here's a staggering piece of factoid for all our listeners here. Nicholas here, our guest here, in 1998 you produced Christopher Lee Hammer Horror Christopher Lee Dracula himself, you produced his first ever album, Christopher Lee Sings Devils, Rogues and Other Villains from Broadway to Bayreuth and beyond. How the hell did that come about? To, to be exactly like Christopher, I will correct you which is something he prided in doing Oh no, what did they do wrong? He, what he would say is, actually, it was in 1996 that the record was produced, <laughs> not 1998. But, oh, no. Yeah, but, but uh, yes, I, I befriended Christopher again about music. We, we, um, yeah. I met him the first time in Los Angeles when The Wicker Man came out, and he, because it had a very bad distribution in the United States, he personally came to to uh, introduce it and to promote it. And I met him when I was very young. And then I got back in touch with him in the 90s because I knew he always had wanted to be a singer and to do, okay. uh, uh, and he had start. he wanted to be an opera singer. And we had a mutual love of Wagner, of opera, of classical music. And I met him in London and he immediately, very much like Charles Manson, really very similar the way that I got to know him. <laughs> There's a comparison and other thought here. Yeah, but our bond was music. <laughs> and we so we collaborated on, well, what songs would you sing? And we, we worked on that. And that was a very ambitious project. Um, you know, we had we had a, a pipe organ on it, which we, we actually went to a cathedral where there was a pipe organ and recorded it, an orchestra. It was it was a very ambitious project, and and we worked in London. We recorded it, the final product in Los Angeles at the landmark studio Crossroads 
of the world. Now, the other thing, film-related, I produced his first record, but the other thing that we worked together that, that we didn't, unfortunately, get to do, and it's one of the regrets I have in my career, I wrote a screenplay about the biography of a biopic of Bram Stoker and how Bram Stoker's okay. connection to Sir Henry Irving, the actor that he worked for as his manager, how Sir Henry Irving okay. was the role model for Count Dracula, his this famous actor. And it was a it was a it was to be a film about the connection, the relationship between Bram Stoker and Sir Henry Irving, and Christopher agreed. He wrote me a letter of intent and was very enthusiastic about the screenplay to play the part of Henry Irving, and he would have agreed to play Count Dracula for the last time, even though he had this very ambiguous relation to what he called that character. He seems so intrinsically involved with the character of Dracula from the Hammer Horror films, so you said he has had this ambiguous kind of relationship with it. When you were making this record with him, Sings Devils and Rogues and other villains, what was his relationship there in the 90s with the character? Was he trying to disavow? Was he trying to dis distance himself from it? I actually, I'm going to write a book about this whole connection of him with it because it's fascinating psychologically. Yeah. And we talked about it a lot. And because I knew these films very well, which he was appreciated that I knew his work, like one in the recording studio, I'll never forget this, during a break in the recording, he actually, he he was proud of his work, but he didn't like to be pigeonholed into it only. He wanted to no. be considered a more versatile actor than that. But w sitting in the crossroads of the world studio, he actually acted out the famous last scene where Dracula dies. And he did the whole okay. thing, like putting the hand over his face. And it was quite yeah. amazing to see him go through the whole thing. He still had that magic touch at the towards the end. He was telling me about what, how they actually filmed it and what the steps were. And, you know, he was an amazing um, monologuist and, and, and he told incredible anecdotes. He was very entertaining. Not all of them were true, I found out later, particularly about his wartime experiences, which is a bit disappointing that he exaggerated greatly his supposed dealings with special forces and, and intelligence kind of thing. He exaggerated or gilded the lily a bit. But yeah, he was he was a very he was like the last of the old school British gentlemen and was very aware of being that, of being like once I did an interview with him early on in my knowing him, and he this is so typical of Christopher, he said where is my replacement? Who can replace me? So would you say the whole rumour about him being the inspiration for James Bond, that would have been just very much embellished, do you think? There's a bit of truth to it. Ian Fleming was his cousin, and he knew Ian Fleming very well, and Ian Fleming was in intelligence. Christopher had a very minor intelligence role as a, a liaison officer to the Royal Air Force, but he was not... He was not out there doing James Bond kind of stuff. People think that, but he really wasn't. But he and Dennis Wheatley also was involved in British intelligence in World War II. So they had this in common. But I th I th Ian Fleming knew all about intelligence work on his own. I, don't, I think Christopher, I think that's very exaggerated. I don't think Christopher Lee was the model. But he was, he was Ian Fleming's cousin, and of course he played okay. Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. And he was up for the role of Dr. No that Joseph Wiseman took, which would have changed his career early on. Joseph Wiseman got cast rather than Christopher in the original Bond film, Dr. No. Now, Nick, something I think connects all these threads here. You released a book, I believe it's in the 2000s, you may correct me, called The Satanic Screen. Right. Now, this is an illustrated book where you tie in the earliest examples of the devil on the screen. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, The Satanic Screen came out on the British publisher Creation Books in 2001. And a new version of yep. it, which I have updated completely, it, it ended, it was, it was from... The original version went from Magic Lantern presentations okay. about the devil, like the earliest projected prototypes of film that strangely very often were about the devil and Satan, right. up to 1999, because the, the book came out in 2001. 
And this new British version that is, you can pre-order it now from Head Press Publishing in Britain, The Satanic Screen, Illustrated History of the Devil in Cinema. This is an updated version and beautifully illustrated, beautifully designed. And that's also coming out in French, Italian, and Spanish all together this year. So yeah, The Satanic Screen covers every pretty pretty not exhaustively or encyclopedically but yeah. most of the major and important portrayals of the devil or of satanism in cinema and it also gets into the interplay and synergy between real so-called occultism and black magic yeah. and cinematic portrayals of it and it shows how much the public idea of satanism really comes from film more than anything much more than any other source what is the earliest portrayal would you say of the devil on the screen there's pretty much no doubt that it was georges malise who okay. was a french stage magician who in 1895 started making some of the first fictional films and and okay. he saw film as a, a branch of stage magic like of illusion of leisure domain so he, they were trick films, that, and Georges Millet became a very important figure in French cinema, and he was called Mephisto Malise because he kept making films about the devil in which he would play Mephisto yeah. or the devil. So he made a, a probably 50 films in which he played the devil, very short. And the first portrayal of the devil is in a movie called The Haunted Castle. What year would that be? That would be 1895, one of the very first films. And okay. the interesting thing is one of the first inventions of a projector, which was in the 12th century of, of shooting, shooting an image <laughs> through glass yeah. that had an image on it, was of the devil. Yeah. So this is something I get into, is the whole idea of cinematography and projecting an image is connected to the devil. So that... Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating because we discuss a lot of horror films on our podcast and, you know, whether that's The House of the Devil by Ty West, which stars Mary Warrenov, one of Warhol's superstars. So we, we, we're well versed in, you know, the, the pop culture iconography of the devil. But as you said, when you were younger, you weren't necessarily into the kind of pop cultural devil. You were into, you know, the literal devil himself yeah. as a young man. So I'm curious... Is there any representation that you've seen that you thought most captured that kind of devil aspect? Well, I get in the satanic screen in the introduction to the new version, I get into how misunderstood this character, the Satan and the devil okay. are. I mean, the, one of the many, many reasons that I broke with Satanism in the 90s and I'm no longer affiliated with the devil or Satanism is because he is not what you think he is. And this may shock people. I've given a lecture, which you can find on YouTube. I gave it at the Wave Gothic Treffen here in Germany last year, called Everything You Know About Satan is Wrong. Basic, the, the actual fact is the devil is a minor spiritual being who is the ally and lieutenant and assistant of God. He is not the opponent of God. The actual true thing is not what you think it is. So the cinematic presentation of the devil in, in, in pop culture and film and literature really doesn't have a lot to do with the reality that we see in the Abrahamic scripture, where in, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Quran, where in Islam he is called Iblis. It really has nothing to do with this cliche or stereotype that we have seen from cinema so like no i can't really think that there is a film that that captures the actual devil not really it is almost a fictional creation based on an actual yeah. spiritual being is there an interesting depiction then in cinema that you've many, many there are there are many great satanic films of course faust by of course. You know, is an incredible film of silent films. That's a classic yeah. cinema portrayal. Um, great performance, beautiful. I mean, that's a work of art. Um, I think The Ninth Gate is one of the best by Polanski, which is an underrated Polanski. Yeah, with Johnny Depp. Yeah, I think it's one of the best portrayals of Satanism. I think it's a very good portrayal. Of, it comes close to the actual way 
of things I've encountered in the real world of Satanism. Okay. That's a great film because it blends this, you know, detective, almost noirish aspect juxtaposed with the sinister kind of Satanist aspect. Right. And yeah, I think it's a much more interesting film than many people have given it credit for. Of course, Rosemary's Baby is the main satanic film that has influenced so many after. But I cover all of them. And and actually not all of the satanic films that are important are horror films. There are many, you know, straight dramatic films that are more interesting about the okay. devil. And I even cover pornography in which the devil appears and comedy. You know, the devil has appeared in all sorts of, of depictions. Bedazzled? Exactly. But I think bedazzled, <laughs> the original Bedazzled, I think uh, Peter Cook's performance is one of the best depictions of the devil. One, one of the most... Wait. It- Wait, is that is that breaking news here, Nick? Nick, have we kind of broke through your veneer? And are you saying Bedazzled is one of the best representations of the devil on the screen? I think Peter, I think Peter Cook's portrayal is one of the better. Yes, I think it's very, it's very good. It is a good film. P- Peter Cook's a great actor. I oh, always yeah. like him. I think very underrated actor, really, really, and very good deadpan performance. I think yeah. that's a really good. I mean, that's a really good uh, morality and parable about selling your soul to the devil or using supernatural powers to get what you want it's it's a folk tale i mean the faust legend has been told again and again in satanic cinema phantom of the paradise is a very good film that shows the faustian legend but connected to pop culture by brian de palma so as we're talking of this transition, this satanic screen, so to speak, and the representation of the devil on screen, but Nick, yourself, you actually have had many acting roles itself. And one of the highlights for me, and I actually just got around to watching it the other day, was Mortuary Academy, starring Paul Bartel and Mary Warrenov. Now, these are two actors I'm very interested in, because Mary Warrenov was, of course, in Ty West's House of the Devil, and she was also a Warhol superstar, who I mentioned earlier. And Paul Bartel and her were almost like a, a comedy double act, so to speak. They were in the terrific film, Eating Raoul. Right. How did you end up in Mortuary Academy? Because you're not only in it, your band is in it. Right. Well, my so my first major role in a film is me playing myself which is very typical of my whole career and you're dead yeah and i'm dead how did that come about well the script for mortuary academy included a band that was exactly like radio werewolf it wasn't called that but they had they invented this sort of macabre vampiric band and wolfman jack plays our uh, manager in the film as you he's a famous american personality do you want to give a brief note on who wolfman jack is in the 50s and 60s he popularized rock and roll he played he had he he, he had a radio station in mexico and in texas that had okay. like reached all over america and when rock and roll wasn't played on the radio he played it so Wolfman Jack plays Radio Werewolf's manager. Was he the DJ at American Graffiti, if exactly. I'm correct? Yes. Right. He has this very yeah. gravelly voice, very distinctive yeah. voice. So in the script for Mortuary Academy, they already had a band. Like They thought they would have to just hire actors to, to have a fake band. And the director, <laughs> Michael Schroeder, read an interview with Radio Werewolf in Music Connection magazine okay. in Los Angeles, and he thought, holy shit, this... This is the band, that they actually exist. And it was to an astonishing degree. It fit exactly what the script. So kind of like in Rock and Roll High School where the Ramones, yeah, it's very much like that. Radio Werewolf is like yeah. the Ramones in there. And so we, we, we played ourselves, basically, and we, we sold the rights to our song 1960 Cadillac Hearst to the production company. And I got to talk to Mary Warrenoff quite a lot. I went to an art gallery showing she had. To me, what was interesting about her is that she knew Nico, who is one of my musical oh, heroes. Yes. So I talked Big to Velvet her about Yeah, I talked to her about, you know, her time with the Velvet Underground and knowing being very close friends with Nico. Um yeah, that so it was a very good experience. Strangely uh, Radio Werewolf was given as a dressing room the Masonic Temple, this huge Masonic <laughs> Temple, because it was right near where the filming was being done, next to a church. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was very strange that we were given a Masonic Temple 
as our dressing room. But yeah, so my first my first major role in a film was playing myself and and we we are reanimated. We die in a car crash, Radio Werewolf, and then Wolfman Jack sells our bodies to this mortuary and we are reanimated temporarily <laughs> to do a final concert and at the end of it we we blow up actually when i watched the film because i was write reviews for new films i watched i described it as it's like a mad scientist put police academy animal house and reanimator into a blender right that's how i described the film at the time so since you since you essentially play yourself and you're in your own band at the very end of the film it's the ending sequence how much do you know about the rest of the film like how are you aware are you of the kind of general crux of the film oh i was because i i spoke a lot to the director and the people involved with the production we were we were very aware of the whole thing yeah what was their attitude with you like you say you became friends or friendly with mary warren of what was the on-set shenanigans like was it was it a fun set yes it was it was professional but it was fun yeah we had a good time it yeah. was not sometimes there are tensions and ego problems on the set yeah. everybody involved was very wolfman jack was very supportive of us uh yeah it was a very pleasant experience it was uh i can't complain of compared to how bad things can go in show business as far wow. as making one's premiere it was good but i had done you know, I'd done a lot of bit parts as many. If you're a weird looking musician in Hollywood in the 80s and late 70s, there were so many films being made and they needed character faces for things. And so I did a ton of work. And the first thing I ever got hired for was the Blues Brother. And I was a teenager. and, they, and But I was <laughs> as tall as I am now. And I always looked older than I am. And they hired me to be a convict in the last scene of the Blues Brothers. And that was actually the first film I appeared oh. in with Belushi and Aykroyd with John Landis direct. I'm going to have to go back and watch the Blues Brothers now and find you in the crowd. A fan of mine somehow tracked down the little scene that it's in. It's 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 <laughs> visible for a moment. But, but so that now when I was on the set of Universal Studios for the Blues Brothers, my only interest was to see the famous stage 25 which is where the phantom of the opera was filmed in 1925 i think it was stage 25 but it was still standing at that time the paris opera set in which ron cheney's okay. made his first so i went there and peeked in there and looked around universal films which of course i had my fascination with universal horror film but also it's the first place charlie manson went where his music career began at Universal Studios. So all these things... There's a thread that ties everything together, isn't there? Yeah, all of these things are weirdly connected. So, and then, then so like in the early 80s, I also was in Blade Runner. I'm in a scene yeah. with Harrison Ford and that, which became the photograph of me in it, became the main publicity picture that was used everywhere for so maneuvering through the scene of 80s hollywood like you're you're in this part you're in this part i know there are relatively small parts but how would you get a blade runner how would you get into that aspect actually that was very weird uh there was a casting director named charlie messenger and another ah. casting director named janet cunningham a very good friend okay. of mine and they both provided these kind of roles with the blade runner thing it was very interesting i actually was reading a Philip K. Dick book, Vallis, at the time, at the very day that they called okay. and said, hey, there's a science fiction film you'd be perfect for, come <laughs> audition. And, I, and he said, it's by some author named Philip K. Dick. And I was literally holding a Philip K. Dick novel in my hand when I took the call from the casting director. Blade Runner was a very interesting experience because the set was like, Ridley Scott built the future. Most films, like you would see the set, it's very flimsy in person. He had the magazines on the newsstands, the food and the food, everything. What It was like being in the future, being on that film. So that was very interesting. That film was designed by Sid Mead, the, the famed futurist himself. Right. It was It was an incredible experience being on it. And a lot of us we, it was a long shoot, and a lot of us took acid on the set, and that made it even more uh, profoundly 
surreal. You made it trippy atop a trippy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and there were a lot of drugs going around in Hollywood right on the set. It was very common. You'd see a lot of cocaine use among people who I won't name them, but people involved. Why doesn't that surprise me? Yeah. And that, tie, and that ties in again because who's in Blade Runner? Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford was also a roadie for The Doors. Yes. Who amongst the three of us are making a documentary on Jim Morrison of The Doors? I have to think about that. Is it you? Yeah. Is it... I don't think so. I don't think well, so. It's certainly not me. All right. Well, I won't be coy about it. So, yes, one of the films that I am already working on and already interviewing people for and will be filming on location in Los Angeles and Paris is a documentary about the mystique <clears throat> of the last days of Jim Morrison, about the whole legend of that and what actually happened, not only about his death, but about why he went to Paris, what what his last days were. It ties into the, the tradition of the lost generation and Bohemians and beatniks going to Paris, American expats going yeah. to Paris and living this artistic life. It, it ties into the 27 Club. So it's going to be, yeah. it'll be the definitive documentary about the last days Jim Morrison was indebted to film. He was, or intrinsically wanted, always to be a filmmaker. Yes. And he did make a short film called Highway, HWI. It was shortened too. Yeah. And have you ever seen that film? It's, it's quite an interesting yes, film. I have. And he knew Charlie Manson better than you would think. That's another part of the whole. Yeah, I think he visited Spawn Ranch a couple times. More, more than that. He knew him very oh. well. They, they knew each okay. other in Venice. Um, so... Yeah, so this is about the mystique of, of the Jim Morrison legend, about the rumors about his death and what exactly happened and to get to the truth of it. And it gets into the 27 Club in general. It's not okay. only about Morrison, but about the whole phenomenon of the, of the dead rock star. What is your general thought on the whole 27 Club? I know a lot of people have said it's a coincidence, but there has been so many people who have died at that age. So what's your general thoughts on it? I don't, I don't really think, I, I think it's an interesting synchronicity that so many of these key figures died at 27. The thing that I'm getting into in the film is that the way that they died was not the way you have been told. And without getting into the details, Jimi Hendrix was murdered. He didn't just die. He was murdered. Uh, okay. for financial reasons, very grubby, sordid financial reasons. Is that the same with Brian Jones? Brian Jones didn't just yeah. die drowning. He didn't drown, he didn't he, drown, no. Yeah, he was murdered. And and Jim Morrison wasn't murdered, but there's a lot of murky circumstances that were covered up about his death, which I'm, I'm not going to get into now, but you'll see it in the film. I know you don't want to get into it, but why don't you juxtapose the official... Um, version of Jim Morrison's death and some of the things you have found out along your trails without spoiling your upcoming yeah, without, without getting into the details what I think what most people think is that Jim Morrison had a heart attack at age 27 in yeah. his bathtub in Paris let's just say there were chemicals involved with that and it probably did not occur in the bathtub he was he was the the death scene was staged and he either okay. he began to fatally OD elsewhere or he came back and fatally OD'd okay. because of drug use. That's that's the thing. And that was covered up. And the the film in a Rashomon kind of way, I'm interviewing many of the people who knew Jim at that time, what they experienced. And their experiences, as with many things, are very different. One person says, no, no, that's what happened. Yeah. Another person says, no, absolutely not, it was this. So, uh, like all of my work, it gets into the mystery of what is reality, what really occurred. Well, I think somebody who kind of gives an alternative perspective and a perspective I think you are possibly going down that trail is Marianne Faithful. Right, Mary, Mary, Mary Faithful is going to be a part yeah. of the film, actually, yes. Yeah. I'm not going to... Yeah get into detail but she was the girlfriend she Mick Jagger and her had split up recently because she had and she admits it she'd become a junkie and yep. she got involved with a with an aristocrat Jean de Bertoul who was yep. a major drug dealer connected to the French connection uh, this this huge drug uh, influx coming in from Marseille and so that that was the substance that that most likely killed 
Jim Morrison. But I've got to say, you are a very productive man, and that is not the only documentary you've got coming up. What other documentary do you have coming up, Nicholas? Right. Well, my production company, which I founded with my partner, Kevin Crace in Britain, is World Operations Production. So we are immediate, like within the week, beginning actual filming of the Morrison documentary. Yeah. We're making a documentary, also a, a, a series about Carlos the Jackal, who was one of the most yep. uh, notorious terrorists of the 70s and 80s. French terrorist, yeah. Right, a Venezuelan, but but largely located in France and yeah. Europe then. I'm doing, I'm not going to get into great detail. In the beginning of this month, I started shooting in Poland a documentary about what you don't know about the Tate-LaBianca murders. And okay. I was in Poland getting into Polanski's background Wojtek Frakowski, who was really the cause of these murders. And that will that will reveal things that nobody has ever known, that the truth about these things, which is not the common story. That's another one. Um, another <laughs> documentary that is in the embryonic stages, but we're going to begin working on, is Concerned Sirhan Sirhan, the purported uh, killer of... Robert F. Kennedy, who actually, in my opinion, is not the killer. Okay. And, and, then, and then there's several others coming up which are in the pre-production stage. But those four are what I'm going to be concentrating on this year and probably into early next year. So you've been a documentarian for decades now and you've covered a lot of subjects. Was there a subject matter that you never actually got to do either because the timing wasn't right or because you couldn't get sufficient material or you just felt you couldn't do the subject matter justice? Well, there were three films, not only documentaries, that I, I was going to make a documentary, as you mentioned, about Jack Parsons and Marjorie Car Cameron in the 90s. Uh, and when we looked into it, ultimately, we just decided not to. We made the decision not to do okay. it for several reasons. Any specific reason? or For one thing, it wasn't the story we thought it was. Actually, it was much more mundane and actually a little... The real story was a little more boring than what you would think it is. is also, it? at the time, Scientology was a lot more powerful than they are now. And it would have required getting into Parsons' relation with L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology... Yeah which okay. we researched in great depth by talking to people who were involved. Um, and yeah, the other two film projects that I regret, what, which I mentioned one was with Christopher, in which he had agreed to play Henry Irving and to do a final performance yeah. as Count Dracula. That was called The Haunting of Bram Stoker. And that, unfortunately, we couldn't manage to get produced because of his schedule. You know, he's working on stuff like Star Wars and stuff like that. So he had ironclad commitments. And, but he was very <laughs> enthusiastic about doing it. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. And then another film that was a vehicle for Tiny Tim, who was a very good friend of mine, the singer. Really? The outside artist? Outsider artist, yeah. Tiny Tim and I were, were friends. And I wrote a kind of... Did you go tiptoeing through the tulips with him? I did. <laughs> I saw him okay. perform it many, many times. I saw him perform okay. it. I need to know how that friendship blossomed. Uh, I met I met him at a concert. We got along. Okay. I contacted him because I want I wanted I I had seen a performance he did in 1970 in a TV show ca called Love American Style, in which he played a vampire and it played okay. a villainous role, and he did it quite well. And I wanted to cast him. I wanted to give him another acting role because I thought he was a really interesting actor. So I wrote a part for him in a film and I gave him like a part of an almost James Bondian like supervillain. And he, he did, we did pre-production. We did the beginning of making it. But then unfortunately, in his case, he died before we could film. Right. He, he died on stage playing Tiptoe through the tulips, in fact. I don't know much about the mythology or the history of Tiny Tim. Did he die on stage? I never yeah, knew that. Yeah, he had a heart, yeah, fatal yeah. heart attack on stage. And we, we oh, okay. I went to his wedding shortly before that, got to know him very, very well. And he was, you know, a, a hero of mine in 1968. I always loved him. So, yeah, it was great to get to know him. And But those are the three regrets I have, a Jack Parsons documentary, Christopher Lee playing Sir Henry Irving in Dracula and this Tiny Tim 
film in which he would have played a Ernst Stavro Blofeld type villain. For our audience here, Nicholas, what is the t- title of your documentary or your film production company and where can they check you out? Well, you can find me on the usual suspects, Facebook and Instagram, Nicholas Shrek on Facebook, Nicholas Shrek Official on Instagram. Uh, we're revamping our website because of these new projects. So that's yeah. in the in the um, works right now. Nicholas Shrek channel on YouTube has tons of stuff, yeah. interviews and films and music videos. For my music, Bandcamp has all of my most recent music since 2017. So you can find me all over the internet quite easily. And you're still performing under Radio Werewolf? No, no. Radio Werewolf start, uh, ended in 1993. Okay. And and despite many efforts of people wanting us to reunite or for me to use the name, I'd never go backwards. So, no, I perform. Okay. I just perform under Nicholas Shrek now for many years. So I'm a solo artist, but I have a dedicated band that I've worked with for years so what i've gathered from what you're saying is you're indebted to early cinema you love silent cinema and you have this dream of making a silent film do you think that that will come to fruition yes yeah after after i have finished these documentaries which i've already committed to and and a few others i will definitely make this a silent film in the style of german expressionist film can i ask you the eternal question for all film lovers Film or digital? Oh, film, without a doubt. Would you make a silent film on digital? It depends on what kind. It always is a financial question of what kind yeah. of budgeting I can get. If I could get, if I could get a cineast who really loves film to invest yeah. for the love of cinema, I would love to make it on celluloid. You know, but we may have to use process digital because that's the industry standard these days. But if if I had my ideal situation i would make it on celluloid actually i think film looks infinitely better than digital do you have the script ready to go for this silent film well it is i'm not going to get into the details it's based on it's based on a novel from the from 1919 i i have the basic script together but a, a script for a silent film doesn't really require the kind of screenplay you have for a speaking film it will have intertitles what? like a classic silent film. Rather, rather, the dialogue will be written out in between the dialogue. And how does your work as a documentarian working behind the camera in that sense, how does that translate into the creation of a feature film? Aesthetically, I think I think I bring a more poetic look to the documentaries I'm making. They're not they don't look very newsy. The way that I'm filming them is much more cinematic. It's not I'm 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 definitely want to create a more poetic and atmospheric look to my to my documentary film. So they almost lend themselves to a more uh like a dramatic feature. That's what that's what they look like. So I don't think there's a vast difference between them. I can absolutely not wait to see these documentaries. As I said, I'm a huge Jim Morrison, huge Doors guy. And you know, me and Wayne here, we both love our silent cinema. But That's the episode, Nick, and it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, deep diving all these esoteric detours that we've taken, all these filmic references, your love of silent cinema. So is there anything else to sum this episode up, Nicholas, that you would like to tell the audience about yourself? I think I think I've said more than enough. I will I will give a break (laughs) to the audience. Probably what will be on my gravestone is this thing that I said on the Wally George show, everyone quotes it, silence. We can end on that note. Thank you for listening, and thanks to all who have tuned in. But this concludes our two-episode dive into the world of Nicholas Shrek. We've covered a whole host of topics, and we hope you continue to detour into the works of Nicholas Shrek. But for now, you've been listening to InFilm We Trust. Join us next week as we'll discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream.